This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from the source. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. This is the podcast where we deep dive into contemporary legal issues in and out of the courtroom. I am your host, Jim Minns. This episode, our three topics are bringing in the troops to respond to Australia's bushfire crisis. Plus, we'll be hearing from military law expert Dr. Cameron Moore from the University of New England. Next up, the secretive criminal prosecution of Witness J in the Australian Capital Territory Supreme Court and the attack on open justice in the name of national security. And finally, our recent calls to criminalise the swastika in the state of Victoria a good idea. And what can we learn about how hate symbols are dealt with around the world? As always, we're joined by the greatest legal minds in New South Wales at the moment, uh, beginning with Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Hi, Jim. Sir. Good to be here. And I don't see Brett Walker in the room, but... He anyway. just checked out. Just checked out. Emmanuel Kukasharian. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy. And Felicity Graham. Hello, hello, Jim. Oh, it's so great to have the band back together. The Wigs. Oh, happy the, New Year. The Barristers happy of New the, the Happy New Year. And we're starting with Stephen Lawrence. Stephen, can you tell us about the legalities around the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison's decision to call in the Army Reserves to assist in the bushfire effort that just took place around New South Wales and Victoria? Should he have done more earlier? Could he have done more earlier? And when can the military be used for other stuff? This is just off the top of my head. I mean, I'm just these questions here. So (laughs) fill us in, please. Yeah, so look, we've just had a summer um, of natural disaster, as everyone knows, and uh, we had the terrible bushfires. I remember as early as November um, hearing calls that the federal government should be sending in the troops, uh, should be sending in the military. And it's a pretty common refrain, I suppose, that you hear when we have natural disasters. There's sort of this view in the community that uh, the ADF is there and that we should be uh, marshalling all our resources and therefore the military uh, should be helping. So it's interesting in light of that controversy and obviously uh, what developed in terms of the pressure that Scott Morrison came under and then his eventual decision to call out the reserves and uh, to dedicate a whole lot of resources, including military resources. It's interesting in the context of all of that, I think, to look at the legalities behind when can the ADF be used for a non-military purpose. Mm. Obviously, the starting point is that the ADF, uh, the military, exists to defend Australia from uh, external right. uh, threat. Okay. So um, invasion, that's uh, the fundamental purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's from the Constitution, or where, was it, where does it say that in law? It is from the Constitution, which certainly um, enshrines and recognises the existence Um, of military forces Mm -hmm. and um, strictly forbids the states uh, from maintaining military forces and the constitution also explicitly puts the governor-general in command of the military. Um, So yeah, our constitution does recognise a military and does recognise, I think, inherent in that term and what that term means, that its purpose is to defend Australia. Okay. It's not to get involved um, in civil governance, um, I suppose. Okay. And, look, this is more than just the demarcation of functions in the public service. There's a whole lot of historical and policy reasons why the military 
as a general proposition, shouldn't be involved in civil affairs. And look, you need, I suppose, to uh, look no further than all the countries in the world under military rule uh, to understand that the military can be, if they're not kept in the barracks, so to speak, uh, can be a threat to the civil order. There's also many historical examples of when the military is called out um, in aid of the civil power, that they haven't respected civil liberties. Yeah. And they're not um, able to, um, I suppose, and martial law is obviously a legal concept, but one that has been utilised to breach uh, the civil order and uh, breach uh, human rights in all sorts of circumstances around the world. Okay. Ever in Australia, any examples? Um, There's certainly been instances... Uh, pre-federation right. of the military or, um, or military forces being used to help states under threat from domestic violence. Right. We've never had a military coup, sort of strictly speaking, though we did have the Rum Corps issue in the very early days of the colony, which in effect was a military coup right. and involved uh, the military usurping uh, the authority um, of the state. Um, but yeah, there's a whole host of reasons why we should guard very carefully this involvement um, of the military in civil affairs, which, um, and when I say civil affairs, that can uh, include law enforcement. There's all sorts of potentials for the military to be asked to get involved in what are domestic law enforcement issues, but it can also be civil assistance, such as bushfires um, and natural disasters. Um, I suppose some some of those other policy reasons why, as a general proposition, you don't want the military involved in these things is that they're experts at defending the country from external threat. They're not experts um, in running the country, I suppose, as a general proposition, but not experts particularly um, in fighting fires, um, in fighting floods or doing any of those other things that um, they often are called to do. So what's the need? Why, why, why is it the first thing to go to? What's the need to bring in the troops? It's long been recognised in law and, I guess, um, in practical policy terms that there are instances where the military will have an internal role, where the military is an effective state resource that is needed at certain times internally in Australia. And those circumstances fall, in a broad sense, uh, into two categories. One um, is described as military aid to the civil power, And there are specific powers in the Defence Act that I'll come to in a moment that give uh, the federal government the power to call out the troops and to use them in um, an internal sense in Australia where there's a Commonwealth interest that is uh, threatened or a state government is incapable of handling a situation of internal violence. Uh, The second category, which is military assistance uh, to the civil power, is in cases of humanitarian disaster, uh, bushfires and so forth, floods, yeah. So those generally are the two circumstances where it's recognised that the military has a legitimate role internally in Australia to do something that is quite uh, distinct from its fundamental purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, The example that came to my mind on this topic was the Northern Territory National Emergency Response Act Mm. and the use of about 600 or so Australian Defence Force personnel that were sent in to the Northern Territory as part of what's called the intervention Mm. under the Howard government back in 2007. That was legislated for in an act, but it did 
seem to me to be an example of where the army is used for this civilian purpose off the back of an inquiry in relation to children being victims of sexual abuse. Mm. And there was an interesting anthology of stories and reports about the NT intervention few years ago and one of the writers was describing the experience of an Australian soldier who'd come back from duty in Afghanistan and who was asking himself the question why he'd been in Afghanistan building schools for girls in Uruzgan province and then coming back to the Northern Territory to build police stations as part of the Mm. intervention. Mm. And that was a very controversial use of the army, Mm. particularly in the context of trauma in Aboriginal communities around invasion and use of authority figures in that way. Mm. So did that? what kind of category would you put that example into? I think that would probably fit um, into the second category mm. um, of civil That's assistance. Right. But the Commonwealth has effectively a plenary grant over the Northern Territory, doesn't it? I think it's a different it situation with the it Territory is. because yeah. this concept of Commonwealth interest, which underpins a lot of the legal rationales for why the Commonwealth is able to do certain things internally with the military would probably lend itself with more force in the case of a territory. Mm. Yeah, because of the special Commonwealth relationship with territories mm. and the fact that they don't fit into the federal system in the same way. So that by that rationale, the uh, Commonwealth could get the troops to march, in, march into porno shops in Ipswich. Not Ipswich. What's the Queanbeyan? Yeah, Queanbeyan is yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Where's the, where's all the um, firecracker shops in... Um, Next to the pot shops. Oh, Fishwick. No, no. Fishwick. Fishwick. Yeah, Fishwick, yeah. So they could just march the troops into Fishwick? No, I don't think so, because they wouldn't have, as they did in the NT, a special act uh, that might have given them special powers to do it. Right. Um, I mean, there's a real distinction in this area between uh, circumstances where there's specific statutory authority to do certain things, including use force, and a circumstance where where the Commonwealth relies on a more general executive power yeah. in Section 61 of the Constitution to provide resources uh, to, uh, to enact uh, certain goals uh, in terms of fulfilling policy, but not, you know, arresting people, not searching houses, not committing what would otherwise be tortious acts. But they could pass a law. There's no... Correct me if I'm wrong, the Commonwealth Parliament could pass a law that said we are using the ADF to come and get your porn in the ACT. Yeah. Maybe not in New South Wales, but in yeah, the that's ACT. That's an interesting question. Probably do it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Section 119 of the Constitution is sort of the starting point with this stuff. So that says the Commonwealth shall protect every state against invasion and on the application of the executive government of the state against domestic violence, so internal violence. Um, In other words, the state has to ask for assistance from the Commonwealth in relation to domestic violence or internal violence. And on the application of the executive government of the state. Yeah, that's right. But when it comes to territories, it's fair game. Yeah, but just going back to Maddie's question, like I don't think that the Constitution envisages... um, that the Commonwealth would use the military to exercise coercive powers in a state outside of a circumstance of internal violence or a threat to Commonwealth interests. 
I think those are the two broad categories. That makes it arbitrary, right? Is that? Yeah, like it's just not the demarcation mm-hmm. of functions um, in the constitution. Like, there's no Commonwealth head of power that says that you can go and raid pornography unless it's something pursuant to the external affairs power where you've signed a treaty uh, no, to but I'm, pornography, maybe. I'm saying that a territory, and I, I may be wrong about this, but the Commonwealth Parliament can do what it likes with the territory in the same way that the state government can do what it... state parliament can do what it likes with the state subject to the constitution. Mm. There's no real... It, it's a plenary grant of power, I think. I may be wrong about that. Mm. Um, yeah, so a specific piece of legislation that gives the military power to do things in a territory. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's going to elude a lot of these constitutional strictures that apply vis-a-vis the states, yeah. It's also interesting to note that effectively a state government can request, state executive government can request this Commonwealth executive government to do something, thus alleviating the need for legislation and probably inviting some pretty heavy involvement by the ADF just on the say-so of executive governments. Yeah, though, uh, that said, there's, um, there's Commonwealth legislation that uh, relies for its validity on Section 119, but also on the executive power in Section 61 and some implications in terms of... There's a constitutional implication that's been declared that the Commonwealth has um, a nationhood power in effect, so the power to do things that a nation has to have the powers to do. Uh, So relying on all of that, there's Part 2 AAA of the Defence Act, uh, 1903, and that um, is quite a big part of the Defence Act and it was amended in 2018 after a few things, including the Lint Cafe siege and the subsequent inquiry into that, where it was considered um, as a matter of recommendation that the existing powers uh, prevented in effect or possibly prevented in effect the ADF getting involved in um, what was happening at the Lint Cafe earlier because uh, the predecessor provisions um, or before the amendment uh, basically made it a precondition for the call-out or involvement of the military that the state couldn't handle the situation. And that obviously involves this fine question of analysis of state resources, uh, the nature of the threat um, and so forth. Mm. And that hampered um, effectively the ADF troops in Sydney, who I understand there were special forces in Sydney that could have responded very quickly, and they weren't, um, it seems, possibly because of uh, the strictures of the law as it stood then able uh, to intervene. So there was a subsequent amendment in 2018, I think it was, um, which essentially allows a call-out where where a call-out to where the involvement of the ADF would be likely to enhance the ability of the state or territory to protect the state or territory against the domestic violence. Uh, so no requirement wow. that the, the state, state wouldn't be able to, to do it, it themselves. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like arresting somebody for jaywalking would be assisted, enhanced if you had 50 guys with machine guns with you. Yeah, I mean, there's provisions in there that mandate... Um, uh, the responsible minister to consider the nature of the domestic violence, you know, undertake an analysis um, in that regard. But, yeah, it's not necessary that the state be unable to meet it. Mm. And you can imagine many, many situations of domestic violence where, yes, of course it will enhance their capacity, 
uh, but they might not need it um, at all. And as the Link Cafe siege, I suppose, demonstrates itself, you know, the threshold for a state of domestic violence in this respect is not widespread. It doesn't have to be widespread. It doesn't have to be something that is occurring across a broad area. It doesn't it have to be, be one... some broad civil unrest. No. Yeah, it can be one single incident. Mm. Um, well, that's it can be civil unrest. I mean, that of itself is a, is a big change. I mean... People walking down the streets of Sydney throwing rocks may now be met with military responses. It's possible, yeah. And look, there was a lot of criticism at the time of the amendment, um, and you can find a fair bit of it online, and maybe we can post some of it. This was a retrograde step in terms of civil liberties because it would facilitate the Commonwealth too easily getting involved Mm. um, in law and order issues um, and so forth. And so can it be a unilateral decision by the Commonwealth Government to engage the ADF or does a state party, state government have to request it? The state government has to request it still. Okay. Yeah, the state government has to request it under the provisions in the Defence Act. Mm. But another victory for the terrorists. Yeah, so the Commonwealth uh, does have to have a request from the state in order to utilise the provision in section sections 35 and 36 to protect a state. However, there's no such requirement in the sections 33 or 34, which give the Commonwealth the power to call out the military uh, when Commonwealth interests are affected. Um, And that, I suppose, makes sense because if the purpose of the call out um, is to protect Commonwealth interests and the state is not requesting it, then I suppose the Commonwealth should have the prerogative. Mm. Um, There was an example of that after the Hilton bombing, wasn't there, yeah. where Australia was hosting international yeah. leaders at a meeting in Barrel, the ADF was circling in helicopters and providing yeah. security yeah, to so the, the Hilton event, bombing, even though New South Wales hadn't requested that's any right. assistance. Yeah. yeah, so the Hilton bombing obviously occurred in Sydney, uh, but in the aftermath of uh, the function at the hotel, the heads of state and the officials were heading to Barrel. The Commonwealth liaised with the state government and the state government said that they would have uh, invited it if it was necessary I see. Uh, but it wasn't deemed to be necessary and it was just done as a matter of collaboration but they called out <clears throat> hundreds of troops into barrel to guard the streets and the area where the meeting down there was happening and they also flew all the dignitaries in helicopters and so forth um the barrel yeah oh, wow. and it was very controversial and it sparked a lot of um legal and policy consideration of this issue and if you do yeah like what i was was going through some of the materials it's referred to a lot the barrel incident yeah the yeah the barrel call out and the barrelians they've never gotten over it those poor (laughs) seriously sleepy place you know poor barrel so the prime minister of australia scott morrison is going to introduce a bill if i'm not correct Mm. um outlining further (coughs) provisions for the use of um the federal, uh, you know, he's, he's the executive military in state situations. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, anymore? sure. So one of the interesting things about the provisions in the Defence Act is, as I've said, there's these express powers to call out the military in cases of domestic violence and in cases of a threat to Commonwealth interests. And when they occur, a whole lot of powers are triggered and some of them are extremely draconian. Uh, so, for example... Troops have a power after call out um, in in either of those two circumstances to search in a designated area, and that includes 
um, search any house in any designated area for any person who is suspected as having acted in connection with the domestic violence. So very broad powers that are not like the powers that we see vested in police. They're sort of classic sort of martial law military powers. So there's those very express powers, but there's not much at all about the category that you just asked about, Jim, which is this category of military assistance to the civil authority by way um, or in circumstances um, of natural disaster and so forth. There is a couple of provisions. So uh, Section 28 um, of the Defence Act states that the Governor-General may by call-out, call out some or all of the reserves. And then uh, in subsection 3 of 28, however, a call-out may only be made in circumstances involving one or more of the following, and then it lists a whole lot of circumstances which include war, um, a defence emergency, uh, defence preparation, peacekeeping or peace enforcement, a whole lot of different things. Uh, But then in G, civil aid, humanitarian assistance, medical or civil emergency or disaster relief. So that's the only express mention in the Defence Act um, in this context to those things um, or that role, but there's no express powers granted under that section. Mm. So it's a power to call out the reserve for the purpose of assisting Mm. um, in a natural disaster, but it doesn't give them any particular powers or immunities um, in doing that. Mm. There are, as I understand it, some immunities and powers that come from state law, So, for example, people that fight fires, uh, people that do different things under state law enjoy some privileges under law, and so the ADF might pick up some of those um, in performing those functions. Mm. But there's no general provision that governs their call-out, and there's no general provisions giving them any powers or privileges. Mm. So when all of this stuff uh, happened over summer, and Scott Morrison came under all um, of that political pressure and criticism for not acting earlier... He obviously reacted um, ultimately and did different things, but he announced an intention to legislate in this area. So to insert provisions, as I understand it, um, in the Defence Act uh, that govern or will govern in what circumstances the military can get involved in this stuff. Mm. And I suppose the political imperative maybe in part behind it is that if it's spelled out in law, then um, you won't get the Commonwealth put under this sort of political pressure where uh, people are saying that they should do more, people are saying that they should take the lead, but uh, but the legal framework actually doesn't allow them to do that yeah, well, because but... it's not clear that even a bushfire incident like the one that we've had, it's obviously not domestic violence. Um, Although I, I just wonder whether there could be an interesting overlap in that concept in the, in the context of bushfires mm. because when you consider arsonists lighting fires, whether that could somehow fall within the definition of domestic violence in some Mm. context. Although we know in the most recent uh, episode of fires in Australia that most of the fires were not caused by arson. Mm. They were caused by by lightning or in the most recent Mm. ACT fires by a defence helicopter crashing and causing a fire. Mm. So... Ironically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sort of occurs to me that there could be an interesting argument about whether sufficient arson activity could engage that domestic violence. I'm scared by this, particularly in a climate where climate change is more than likely than not to be causing more and more <coughs> issues like this. I don't know that we should be, our response to climate change should be authorising men and women with guns and tanks to go on our streets. I think it's frightening. 
what we need to do is take some of the money maybe that we're giving them and give it to our agencies whose purpose is to do these things. Let's build them up and have them fight it. Mm -hmm. Give us a little bit more of the money back from the Commonwealth and we'll do that. Um, I don't know why we need to be making these things easier for what are otherwise exceptional circumstances. Mm -hmm. And if they're not exceptional circumstances... Don't rely on the exceptional mechanism to fix it. Fix it by fixing the, the underlying infrastructure. Well, it sounds like it was an accidental PR response that has legal implications because the fingers were pointed saying, where are you on this? And there are provisions in the underlying legislation. And all he could do was he could get up at a press conference, the Prime Minister I'm speaking of, and say, hey, if the states want it, I will give it. And instead he said, you're right, I'm going to bring a bill. It's all. I mean, there's also a lot of discussion in um, not so much in the cases because this area is not that litigated. There's really no authority on this, so a lot of it um, is academic writing and so forth. But there's a lot of discussion and a certain amount of it in this context about this idea of Commonwealth interests, and that's obviously a broad concept, and it can develop as you know, our federation develops, I suppose. So it's talked about, for example, that in respect of industrial disputes, that um, it's been justified, uh, the military getting involved in industrial disputes on the basis of Commonwealth interests in interstate trade um, or the economy broadly or things like that. And that, I think, that analysis merges a bit with this idea of a nationhood power, which Mm -hmm. obviously is another sort of ambulatory sort of idea to bring out this idea that perhaps there is now a proper Commonwealth role in responding to natural disasters uh, by virtue of the role of the federal government and so forth and its interests in you know, the economy and the society. But it's not reflected really in our, in our um, agency arrangements. So you can sort of call on the, uh, the feds to get involved and call on the feds to take the lead, but the states fundamentally have uh, responsibility for emergency services, for law enforcement and so forth. So this idea of the Commonwealth acting um, or preempting things or acting um, on their own volition, don't know that it's all that practicable because, mm. I mean, for example, there's a bushfire emergency on the south coast. Uh, the feds send in the Navy to send the troops in to evacuate people, but the state agency hasn't resolved to do that and doesn't think it's appropriate. You can just easily imagine a very unworkable uh, situation arising. But I think fundamentally it is very political because th- a lot of these um, these responses are innately political and, you know, I suppose revolves around what the view in the citizenry is about the role of the federal government. So you might get a clamour for the feds to do something and to take the lead and to act unilaterally, but it's actually inconsistent with our federal structure but also inconsistent with the structures of governmental agencies that flow from that. So there's a real potential there for a mishmash and things to not work particularly well, I think. Mm. And let's not forget that each of the states and territories in Australia have specific pieces of legislation to deal with emergency-type situations, and we've had a state of emergency declared recently in the ACT under their relevant Emergencies Act provisions, which then increases the powers of certain emergency services personnel to stop people from going into areas or entering, you know, doing certain other things to protect enough. people. Go throw more law at it. 
more mm. law, more guns, more yeah. people. We're, we're I mean, on people. It, it strikes me as absurd to think that some bureaucrat in Canberra could know better the response required than somebody who's on the ground in wherever the bushfires burn. Right. Mm. You know, yeah. and you run the risk if you're sending the ADF to do these things that people in Canberra are making the decisions. Mm. Well, that's one of the practicality reasons for usually the army being confined to protecting the country from external threat because that's what they're specialists in yeah. and that's what they know and if they're doing something else then they're not the specialists and also if they're doing something else they're not spending time being the specialists and being expert that's, in the area that they're meant to be confined to. Yeah, I mean all of this might be an argument for a new federal agency maybe. Like if the view in the population is that the federal government should be leading on disaster relief, well you probably should create a new federal department of disaster relief and fund it properly and have a constitutional arrangement where that's possible but mm. it's as you said Matty, very questionable whether the feds are in the best position to run this stuff i think the clamor was not for the feds to actually do anything it was for a prime minister who was not in the country to be in the country and to you know act prime ministerial and the response the response has been to his the response to his failure to do so has been to kick up a sort of sideshow where we need some law and we need some powers mm when the real clamour was just, hey, mate, come and do, come and hang out with us and see what it's like and offer a bit of help here and there. Now, we might take a little break because we're going to have a guest join us on this topic. We'll be right back after this. So right now we are joined by Dr Cameron Moore, who is an Associate Professor in Military Law at the University of New England. Why don't we start, Cameron, with the provisions in the Defence Act that that currently provide for call-out. Um, I was just curious what your what your views broadly are about the amendments that came in, I think, in 2018, after uh, probably a few things, but particularly the Lint Cafe siege and the coronial inquiry. Yes, it's um, interesting. I, I think that the Part 3 AAA amendments were, were well overdue, uh, there's, it's a very powerful piece of legislation, but it's also quite... It's previously, it was quite clunky in terms of getting a call-out. So there were lots of um, restrictions in it that... Um, mainly process restrictions that meant that by the time all the documentation was in place and the approvals were in place, things might have unfolded far too quickly. And the danger then is that you don't rely on the legislation for a period of time, you're relying on executive power. And I think that that's risky um, and I think that the other alternative of doing nothing is not an option that's realistically available to a democratically elected government. What would you say about this criticism that we're, that we're leaning too far to military involvement in what should be fundamentally state law enforcement issues? The main reason for having Parts Reach AAA in the first place, so it first came into the Sydney Olympics but it was based on a recommendation from the Hope Review that came after the 1978 barrel call-out for the Chobham meeting um, was that there's a point beyond which the police just don't... Uh, there's a level of capability with some threats that's just beyond the capacity of the police to cope with. Um, so that's the reason for using the defence force so that you're not in a situation where you've got lightly armed police uh, who are just overwhelmed. Um, so that's the underlying rationale for being able to use a call-out in, um, in, within a state 
Um, and I, I suppose the key shift that's happened with the most recent amendments is that it, it's not where you have a situation that's beyond the capacity of the police now, but where it will enhance the police response. Mm. So that's a fundamental conceptual change, but still nonetheless um, the situation where police have primacy, but they need the extra um, resources that the ADF can bring. It's um, problematic. I wish more people were doing what you're doing and inquiring into it and thinking about it because it's really powerful legislation. I don't think there's legislation this powerful in the English-speaking world where you can actually shoot down aircraft in the air and destroy vessels at sea, um, take uh, siege situations and kill people. Mm. Um, in Australia, we've gone to the trouble of putting it all in legislation much more explicitly than in other Commonwealth countries. Uh, and I think that people will be really surprised if they read it and saw how powerful it was, and I think it would be better if everyone realised that. Um, and it doesn't mean to say that um, the legislation is excessive. It just means that if it is used, people understand what's actually going on, mm. what the Parliament signed them up to. So I saw an article uh, when I was researching this episode that was talking about the creeping militarisation of state police forces and suggesting that, that that might actually offend the constitutional rule that the states aren't allowed to have military forces. Um, just, just curious if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, actually, technically they can have military forces. They just need to have the approval of the Commonwealth to do it. Right, OK, um, interesting. So, um, Section 114. So, um, my, my preference is, as a sort of indicated to you earlier that I'd rather that the police had more capability than that we called in the military. So the police are meant to be responsible for internal security and the ADS responsible for external security. So the more that the police are able to respond to those internal threats, I think the better it is. We've got this deep-seated political culture that um, recoils against the idea of putting troops on the streets. Mm. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, so uh, if the police can make those responses, I think that that's that's more appropriate. Yeah, so that's an argument, what, for specialist units that are equipped to undertake military sort of style operations to deal with, what, terrorist threats and so forth? That's right. The special operations groups, uh, the marine units, the air wings, that sort of thing, it's probably better if that capability resides in a police force. Mm, mm. So maybe moving on then to uh, the natural disaster stuff that's obviously been prominent um, over the summer... My understanding is, we've just been talking about it, that there's no real substantive provisions in the Defence Act apart from uh, natural disaster and so forth being a precondition uh, for calling out the reserves, but there's yes. no sort of express powers or express uh, threshold uh, for doing it. Uh, but apparently, um, I recall we discussed earlier, Scott Morrison has announced an intention uh, to amend the Defence Act in that regard. Is that right? Yes, so he made a speech at the National Press Club last week. Um, most of the, atten- the media attention was on his comments on climate change and his response to the sports, um, previous sports minister's uh, difficulties. Uh, but there were some pretty important points in there earlier in the speech about uh, amending the law so that it would be easier for the uh, Commonwealth to intervene into natural disasters in the States. Um, so at the moment, Part 3 AAA deals with situations of violence, Part 3 AAA, the Defence Act. There's no equivalent for dealing with um, natural disasters. So he proposed three things, which is to um, effectively have a reference of power from the states to make it 
easier for the Commonwealth to intervene of its own accord in the states in those situations to have um, more elaborate arrangements for Commonwealth intervention in the states, so plans, I suppose, and then some sort of national accountability uh, agency that oversees all of those plans and schemes and coordinates it all. So it's at a fairly high level of abstraction mm. at the moment, but that's the gist of what he was saying. Mm, so does that sound like a move by the federal government towards developing a legal and practical capacity, uh, like for unilateral uh, action in case of natural disaster? That's what it sounds like to me, and that's a pretty significant shift. So I think that Prime Ministers don't like being in a situation where there's something pretty serious going on and everyone looks at the Prime Minister, but it's actually the state premiers who've got the lead. Mm. Um, you might recall some years ago, Prime Minister Gillard was under a lot of pressure for her response to the Queensland floods, and it was actually Premier Bly in Queensland who had the, had the lead. Uh, I think that Prime Minister Morrison's felt the same mm. greater pressure with respect to these bushfires. So what would the constitutional basis of power be... Assuming there was not a referral, what would the constitutional basis of power be for uh, Commonwealth troops to be sort of doing things in response to a natural disaster? Are we talking about the nationhood power or...? I think so. I think that there's two um, bases on which um, Commonwealth could intervene at this point in time without a request from the states. One would be to protect its own interests... Um, which uh, there's some constitutional basis for, which is, I suppose, a, a strand of nationhood power thinking, but it's the Commonwealth intervening to protect its own interests, um, post offices and um, telecommunications mm. facilities and ports and all the things that are within areas of Commonwealth responsibility. But that's still not... It's, it's a limited intervention in the state in that sense. Uh, but then the bigger argument would probably be a nationhood power argument that... Um, it's purely within the capacity of the Commonwealth Government to do these things. But as um, Michael Eben has argued in his uh, emergency law blog um, and elsewhere, um, it's pretty questionable. I think the King and Sharkey, the sedition case of 1949, and a number of other cases, particularly this one, um, Justice Dixon made uh, clear that public order is a matter for the states and... Uh, the Commonwealth can't really intervene without a request from the executive government mm. of the state. Even whether it's public order or domestic violence, it's, it's their state matters. So we talked earlier about all of the reasons why the military should uh, be fundamentally sort of confined to the defence of Australia's civil liberties and sort of histories of military coups and overreach and so forth. I mean, they're obviously sort of broad historical sort of issues... I mean, is there anything to worry about, do you think, from a civil liberties point of view, with, with, the, with more legislation allowing more involvement by the military and things like this? Uh, yeah, I think that it has to be... I, I'm in favour of the reform in that if you're going to use the ADF in this fashion, as they have been called out and used in the fires, I'm in favour of being put on a more explicit basis so that the powers and... Um, Immunities and so on are, are more clearly stated, but I, I really um, caution. The, the, the caution in it is that defence forces tend to be really highly organised and capable organisations, and the more you mm. use them for civil things, the more people look to them to do things. <laughs> and 
and it takes them further away from their normal function of defending against external threats. So I think that that's a risk. I also think that um, one of the advantages of a federal system is that you have a great diffusion of power between the different governments. I know that most people complain about the friction that you get when you've got state and federal cooperation issues, but it's also uh, protection for civil liberties in the sense that, in that you don't have all the power in the hands of one government. Yeah. So uh, if the, the more it dilutes the role of the states, the, uh, I think that... Um, the more risk there is of uh, everything ending up in the hands of one government. Welcome back to the Wigs. What a great break that was. Uh, but we're back into it now with Emmanuel Kirkasharian, um, legal practitioner extraordinaire, to talk us through uh, something that's been happening that's quite sinister. From yes. what I believe. Can you please fill us in? Left-handed. In mid-May 2018, Lorraine Water, the Chief Magistrate of the Australian Capital Territory, locked up, that is, denied bail to a prisoner. Uh, that prisoner was known by the designation prisoner 123458. Um, we know that that prisoner was a man because he was sent to a men's jail, the Alexander McConaughey Centre, uh, he was sent to the High Security Sex Offenders Wing, although he was not a sex offender. Uh, now, we know that if he had told his wife with what he'd been charged with and that he was going to jail, I don't know whether or not he had a wife, but if he had a wife and he'd told her he would have been committing an offence, if he had a best friend and he told him or her that he was what he was going to jail for, he would have been committing a criminal offence. So assuming he obeyed the law, somewhere in mid-2018, prisoner 123458 disappeared from our society and went into a jail. It's a little bit weird, and a couple of journos caught wind of it, I think an ABC journal, and I can't remember where the other one was from, and they asked Helen Murrell, Chief Justice of the Australian Capital Territory, what was going on. Um, Her Honour did not respond. Another judge responded uh, and told them that... In effect, there were these closed court proceedings going on, um, the National Security Criminal and Civil Proceedings Act 2004, that's a Commonwealth Act, had been invoked, uh, and that's it. Closed court proceedings. Yes, and so in May 2018, one prisoner 123458 was, sorry, in in 2019, uh, that prisoner was sentenced And the only thing the world knew at the time that he was sentenced was the following. There was a little sign that was put up that said, Before Justice Burns, in courtroom SC4 at 10am, sentence, matter suppressed. And that's it. Court was closed. He was sent to jail. Well, he he sentenced to continue his time in jail. Anyway, it turns out that this person had the temerity to write memoirs whilst he was in amongst the pedophiles in Alexander McConaughey Centre. And um, for, da- for daring to do so, uh, and I stress that the, the Piers the Memoirs was not about anything to do with him being in prison, but rather his experiences there. Um, not to do with the reason why he, why he was in prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, the federal police, you know, you can't have people writing, so the federal police raided him in his cell uh, and so on. Fortunately, they did that because he sued 
<laughs> and we come, we, we end up with a case called Johnson, the Director General of the ACT Justice and Community Safety Directorate, and I hesitate to kind of say the ACT Justice and Community Safety Directorate. I mean, how more... How much more Orwellian can you get than that? Mm. Um, so anyway, that case, 2019, ACT Supreme Court 311, um, was delivered on the 1st of November 2019 by Justice Burns of the ACT Supreme Court, um, who gave him the name Johns, right. which is where we get the name Witness J, which ah. is the person that I'm talking about. Okay. And so that case legally is, is reasonably boring. He sought some... De- declaratory relief and some injunctive belief, but because by the time the judgment was delivered, he was already out of prison, there was nothing that, that there was no real reason to give him anything that he wanted. But what we learnt in that was that there was a manuscript that he was writing, there was a few manuscripts he was writing, um, they'd frozen his contact with friends and family through email and so on, the AFP had raided him and so on. We also learnt that upon his re- arrival in prison, he was diagnosed with a mental health disorder. So, at this stage, we actually knew nothing about him until he launched that proceedings. In the course of those proceedings, he was still not able to identify himself. Like, can't use his own name in suing about what had happened to him whilst he was in prison for offences that were still not identified. Um, anyway, he lost that case and no doubt cost him a fair bit of money, but it's shone a bit of light. Um, and through Twitter and other things, there's an anonymous Twitter account that claims to be him and some good work from some people. We've learned a little bit about him and what we know is that effectively he was a career a career spy or at least a career international bureaucrat um, with an, effectively an impeccable record who found himself um, in, the, in the capital of Southeast Asia, in a Southeast Asian capital, rather, um, and there was some concern in the ordinary testing of his security levels uh, that he wasn't telling the truth about some things, and he had a mental health crisis around that time. So there's someone who served our country in effectively hostile environment for a significant period of time, um, who's got a mental health problem, and he asked for some help. And this is all before he's charged, of course, and um, he sought internal help on three occasions for his mental health, um, but his security clearance prevented him from seeking help outside his employment. So he wasn't given the level of help that he needed, and we know that he's got mental health problems because by the time they lock him up, he gets his treatment. So he's going to be put in jail to get his treatment. So was he restricted seeking help because he couldn't talk about the subject matter that was troubling him? That's right. Um, And so, anyway, he gets upset because he's, you know, a bit coy in his security responses and they say that he's a security risk and this gives him the shits. So he sends some complaints to the head of security and to the departmental psychologist back in Australia and he sends them on an open email. So... We don't know for sure, but it's reason. I think, I mean, well, well, I don't know that I can say that without committing a crime. Oh, I just did. Shit. Well, who knows? We don't know what the crimes are. And if you and and and, you know, we don't know what they are. are. It seems from the media reporting, at least, that it's criminal offences committed in respect of information security. So the way that he's dealt with information that has arisen from his employment. 
which yeah. which by inference sounds like disclosing that he is employed there and maybe talking about things that have happened to him. I'm not sure. It, apparently, according to some negotiation, I'm not sure how this happened, but this is from a media report, he's able to describe his convictions as having been for, quote, mishandled classified information. Mm. Yeah. Right? Um, he pleaded guilty. We know he pleaded guilty. So there was no jury. Uh, but he had a secret court proceeding. He couldn't tell his lawyer his own name. Um, oh, okay. And, I mean, everyone... So what's the lawyer do? The lawyer just gets up and goes, well, uh... Who knows? Who knows what you do? But a um, couple of former Supreme Court judges, John Dowd, who was former Attorney General, Supreme Court Judge Anthony Wheeler, former Supreme Court Judge, Brett Walker, the former Independent National Security Monitor, have all slammed this for what it is. Uh, but the reality is we now live in a place where you can be tried and you can't talk about it, and you can be jailed, and you can't talk about it. And more importantly, the media can't report on it, and no, no. one can go into court and sit and watch. No. So what act did all this happen under? It's the National Security Criminal and Civil Proceedings Act 2004. It's the usual rubbish Commonwealth drafting. It's um, really... It allows effectively for the Attorney-General to certify, although I don't know if it's a stivia, but effectively to say... This information poses a national security risk uh, and the court is pretty much bound by that uh, and then the court decides whether or not that risk should be balanced against other factors uh, and, well, in this case it come, you know, it landed where it landed. But And the entire proceedings was closed on that phone. Yeah, everything. That's what I find extraordinary about this case because... You can well understand that particular evidence that might emerge in a proceeding might warrant suppression on the basis of national security. But why the entirety of the proceedings, including the existence of the proceedings? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know because we don't obviously know the subject matter, but it's difficult to imagine what could warrant such a carte blanche approach. It's really interesting. So the person that's identified themselves as being Witness J has done an interview with Sydney criminal lawyers, which mm. put out um, interviews and quite interesting articles on different legal issues from time to time. I think they interviewed you once, Stephen They, did, they post the wigs as well. So did they? Oh, thank you. He said in that um, there are issues related to my case that should not be made public, but the level of suppression should give alarm to those with an informed knowledge of what justice means. And then he goes on to say, as one of many examples, my own barrister, the distinguished Mr Kieran Gingies, did not know my own real name throughout my matter. I would note for completeness he still does not. And he was asked about this idea uh, or this criticism that former Supreme Court Judge Anthony Wheely had levelled that this case involved a complete abandonment of open justice and that it suggests Australia is heading down this road of totalitarianism. Our witness, Jay, said, I do not have the formal legal training uh, to give an answer that that question demands, but I can answer as an everyday informed Australian and particularly one who understands implicitly what the national security risks and provisions are in my particular matter. And he said, I'm convinced that the abuse of national security provisions is a clear indictment on a country that seeks to minimise embarrassment and avoid accountability rather than genuinely seek to protect this nation's secrets. He says, 
and I thought this was a really powerful kind of way of expressing the experience that he's had. I was disappeared from my family, my life and my country by a legal system that tends to hold itself morally high and point to draconian and authoritarian systems in other countries. And he holds citizenship into other countries and he's considering renouncing his Australian citizenship and going and living elsewhere. Mm. He's been so marked by this experience in his country, how he's been treated as a citizen. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's funny to sort of comment on something where, you know, by virtue of the issue, you don't sort of know the facts. Mm. And I've got to say, like, John Burns is a very well-respected judge in the ACT, and he's not someone who is non-sceptical of power, and he's not a pro-prosecution judge. Um, so when I sort of consider this issue, I sort of give that a lot of weight. Um, but, you know, we have movies and books written about all of these American spy cases where, you know, the breaches of national security are much more profound, surely, than anything that has occurred in this case or could occur. Yet the Americans seem to be able to run their system with those matters being prosecuted in open court. Um, it's got to be aliens. So it's got to be. <laughs> well, I'm mean, thinking about our culture, our Australian culture, and, our, and maybe the culture in the federal government that is, a, a, I don't know, a bit secretive or very secretive on these matters and a bit self-important. I mean, it's a little bit of rubbish, isn't it? Like, the minute you find out that there's a person called Witness J, every security agency from every other nation that has an interest in him has already figured out who he is. Right. Right? Because you would do that. I mean, don't tell me the Americans don't know. Don't tell me the people with, in South, Southeast Asia don't know who he is. Of course they know who he is. So what's the point of suppressing his name in those circumstances? We can at least undo that. Yeah. Um, but also... The, the maybe people... because it reveals methodology. Maybe oh. because it reveals where we have agents of this particular I mean, they agency. know. Is they, they must know. They, they, they must know. But the blanket suppression just really irks me. Perception is critical to the legitimacy of our justice system, particularly the criminal justice system where we're dealing in people's liberty. So, so what does the High Court say about this then? Why are they silent on it? doesn't get there. It shouldn't get there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he pleaded guilty. Oh, um, so he, he was... Okay. Let's... And it's unclear whether at the time of the proceedings, I think it's unclear that he violently objected to these orders being made. Well, I read he, one I mean, report that no said the, the parties sought the orders, which right? suggested to me more than just one side in terms of well, the, I mean, the government, although it could have been, I guess, the, the attorney the and the Crown. Although yeah. I'm not... Yeah. Yeah, the attorney brings these effectively turns up and argues these on behalf of... Although them. it was such a secret trial that the Justice Minister in ACT said yeah. they didn't know. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm. The other problem is that you have to... you have to, Even if you accept that everybody involved, and there's no reason why one wouldn't accept that Justice Burns acts as you say, but where's he getting his information from? Yeah. Right? And where's the Attorney-General getting his information from? It's coming from these agencies, and there's no proceedings that tests it. Right? No one's going in to the director of ASIO, and I don't know whether that's the agency involved, but no one's cross-examining the director of ASIO for a couple of days on the need for these things. And the 
amount of pressure that can be brought to bear by these agencies. And one of the things that the open justice principle really underpins is the fact that the judicial system itself has an interest in having open justice. And it doesn't matter, even if the parties want it to be quiet, it ought not be quiet because it diminishes the justice system. Yeah, so it's maybe a case for a sort of non-party but an independent advocate under statute to make submissions in these matters in favour of freedom of information against suppression orders. A contradictor. A contradictor type the... position. Yeah, and we have one in New South Wales. Like mm. There's the Freedom of Information Commissioner in New South Wales who turns up in Gipper matters in NCAT and argues from a premise in favour of more information and so forth. So maybe that's what we need in these matters, that in every single matter there's some statutory authority that turns up and argues the contrary position because it probably is hard for judges if the parties are saying just suppress it he has no other information and no contradictor, then generally orders get made. It sounds like the Attorney-General is quite complicit in that ruling, though, and as if they're going to make a statutory body, then that sort of goes in and makes it transparent. Yeah, look, the federal government probably wouldn't want it. I'm sure the intelligence agencies wouldn't, but sounds like it might be warranted. And also they end up being captured is always the danger, the fact that you've got if you have one or two people who are consistently doing this work that becomes their practice, that becomes their business, and they're not going to rock the boat too much. Right, right, right. Because right. they've got to get paid. So. Another interesting aspect of this case that emerged from the civil litigation is that the memoir that he wrote in jail about his experience in jail but not revealing why he was there was in response to a suggestion from a mental health nurse that he write a journal and write about his experience. And it seems to me that storytelling and the ability to express yourself about your own life experience is so fundamental to being a human being that to deprive someone of even that is a really extreme measure. It is sort of what you sign up for, though. Like when you sign up for ACES or like agencies, I mean... It's not your normal line of work. You're signing up to a lifestyle. You're signing up to a whole lot of restraints in terms of what you can tell people about where you work. I mean, I remember in Canberra uh, when I worked down there, like, you know, people in those agencies generally would say that they worked elsewhere and they're sort of covert by their nature, you know. So they're, sure, it's a restriction, but is it um, a legitimate one to some extent? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with that. The thing that... The thing that troubles me is that if we're acting outside the law, if this person was acting outside the law of a foreign country and he makes this mistake because he's mentally ill, do we really need to try him? Can we not find some other way, even if it is sort of extrajudicial, extra-legal, to deal with this circumstance? And again, we don't know the details. But what I worry about is, is engaging the machinery of the criminal justice system where you're otherwise operating outside of it. So, sure, he signs up for those restrictions. He should be forced to keep his mouth shut about it. Fine. But also, he's working for the government, perhaps extra-legally in some way. The government should then not have the recourse to the law to restrain his conduct either. And when we burden people with the responsibilities of everything that comes to being a spy or an army intelligence officer or people with really high security classifications for whatever reason as a bureaucrat in the government or otherwise... I think it's really incumbent on us to actually set up a proper working system to help people with their mental health that will 
inevitably be compromised and vulnerable because of the information that they're being exposed to and because they can't share it outside, say, or maybe not even with their colleagues. So, Mm. and that's been a real criticism that Witness Jay, I think, has made about his experience that he was really needing some assistance with his mental health. He couldn't get it. That was partly because of the constraints on him. But if we want to have a successful intelligence service that is not going to be vulnerable to, I guess, lapses of security and disclosures of information because people become unwell and compromised decision-making. I mean, I'm not sure whether that that seems to be a factor that was underpinning the circumstances in this case, and you can imagine it coming up in other cases as well. We have to confront that, I think, in terms of service provision to those people. It's all an argument for a Bill of Rights as well, isn't it? Because if you had a Bill of Rights, then you ultimately would get the High Court embarking on a consideration of whether you can do this and still maintain those fundamental rights around impartial open courts that are enshrined in human rights law? I mean, I, I can't help but wonder whether a permanently secret legal proceedings is something that, you know, is compatible with the v- role of a Chapter 3 court. But I suspect this... Leg- I've, I've got a, I haven't checked, but I've got a serious suspicion that this legislation has got the tick from the High Court before. Well, like you said yourself, no one's going to challenge it anyway. No one's going to the High Court and saying it's invalid court. Yeah. Even Jay himself is like, yeah, 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 lock me up. But fuck you at the same time. Well, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, in, in these circumstances, it's really easy It's really easy to pressure somebody to plead guilty. It's really easy to pressure them to just agree to the orders um, because often the other... I've I, I got the statistics. There are... 358 criminal secrecy offences in the Commonwealth law. There's a lot. Right? Um, There's 506 secrecy provisions in 176 pieces of Commonwealth legislation, 358 of which are criminal offences. So you can imagine often there are are sort of tiered levels of offences. A lot of them carry lengthy jail times um, and often it's pretty easy to prove these things. There's strict liability or they're in such a way that a minor misstep results in a criminal conviction against you. You cut a deal. Anyway, it's miserable business. Signed up for it, I guess, like you said. Yeah. Okay, what a fantastic topic that was. Uh, We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to The Wigs, the only legal podcast in the country to feature practicing barristers uh, who are also at the height of their practicing abilities. Uh, We're going to move on to the next topic, which is um, symbols of hate and uh, whether or not they should be banned. You know, some, some background questions could be, you know, when is it a crime to display a symbol of hate like the swastika? Uh, how should hate speech and hate symbols be regulated? Should symbols of hate uh, be specifically prescribed? Uh, and I fucked that up, that last one. Um, because I'm just thinking of these. I'm not, this hasn't been written down and prepared for me. I'm just throwing this out there. But symbols of hate, they're horrible things, but should the law be involved? Felicity Graham. <laughs> Jim, last month a couple in the town of Beulah in 
northwestern Victoria, about four hours' drive northwest of Melbourne, flew a flag above their home, a red and black flag featuring a swastika surrounded by other Nazi symbols, the Reich Eagle, the Iron Cross. The flag resembled a Wehrmacht flag, which was used in the 1930s to represent the armed forces of Nazi Germany. Okay. Their motivation for doing so is a bit unclear. The Age newspaper in Melbourne reported that one of the residents claimed she displayed the flag as a tribute to her German ancestry. A Victorian police spokesperson who was commenting after there'd been complaints about it said that the occupants of the house were not aware that the flag would cause offence. Oh, really? But offence it certainly did cause... A number of neighbours in the town made complaints to the police and eventually the flag was taken down after several weeks, although not because the police in Victoria could enforce any particular law to bring that about. Right. What dickheads? This case... No, the people, the couple, honestly. Yes, very insensitive. Yeah, and... It's The case has really focused the attention on laws that protect against racial vilification and hate speech in Victoria. It comes against the backdrop, uh, accidentally really, uh, of a Victorian parliamentary inquiry into the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, which is due to report to the Victorian government in September this year. And there's a 2019 bill that's before the Victorian Parliament which is not actually geared towards dealing with this specific issue of racial vilification or symbols of hate, but it's designed to extend the protections from vilification from grounds of race and religion to also the categories of gender, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics. So that's going on in the background. But in light of this event in Beulah, the opposition party in the state of Victoria, the Conservative Liberal Party, is calling for the specific criminalisation of the swastika and powers to be given to the police to tear down Nazi flags, confiscate items that are believed to breach the ban, put a six-month criminal offence tag on displaying these kind of symbols. It's just going to encourage it. Mm. Yeah, well, we, I think we really need to debate what's the the benefit of that kind of approach. But there's certainly lobbying going on um, in Victoria to ramp up the criminalisation of this type of conduct. So just to lay the scene a bit, I think it's useful to look at how this type of conduct is regulated in other parts of the world, particularly starting with Germany. Uh, So the use of Nazi symbols, written materials, insignia related to Adolf Hitler's regime, it's completely banned in Germany and it's a criminal offence to use symbols, flags, uniforms, slogans, even forms of greeting like the Hail Hitler form of greeting. Um, They're all banned under German law and I'm going to give it a whirl, the Strafgesetz, but I can't do it. Yeah, you nailed it. That was it. Uh, So under sections 86 and 86A of the German Strafgesetz book or Criminal Code... If you could do the whole next bit in German. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Writings and use of symbols of unconstitutional organisations or political parties or organisations that have been banned as anti-constitutional are outlawed. And there's a specific 
outlawing of the means of propaganda of the former National Socialist Organisation. And there's quite a useful publication on the German government website that sets out all of these different symbols that have been um, banned by association with these types of organisations. Can I just throw in a little conundrum there? I do know that the film Inglorious Bastards was actually filmed and produced in Germany. But it would have had to have taken liberties with the uniforms and the, you know, how do you get around that law in a Hollywood production? Yeah, so the ban broadly exempts art, science, research, teaching, and has these exceptions that permit, for example, films to display things. There was another recent slightly controversial example. In late 2018, the German um, industry body in relation to computer games lifted its ban on the use of the swastika and other Nazi iconography, including Hitler's moustache, in a World War II video game that um, had previously been banned on grounds of anti-constitutional content. And is that art, is it? Well, I think it was on the basis that it met the definition of either serving an artistic purpose or helping to depict current or historical events accurately. So the the body, the German Entertainment Software Self-Regulation Body, has decided that rather than having a blanket ban, they will examine video games on a case-by-case basis and look at whether the swastika and other symbols can be included legitimately. It also extends in terms of the ban to symbols that from a distance convey to a passerby the impression that it is the swastika or relevant symbol um, and to slightly modified symbols and insignia which are so similar as to be mistaken for those belonging to unconstitutional organisations. The offence provision carries a maximum penalty of three years in prison and whilst the German constitution protects freedom of ideas and expression as rights under their uh, law, those rights and freedoms are effectively superseded by these various provisions that can ban certain organisations and their symbols, etc., including Scientology, ISIS, um, various different extremist left-wing organisations like the former Communist Party and so on. So it's not specific to the Nazi regime. Was the German constitution amended after World War II or was it a brand-new constitution post-war? Does anyone know? I'd be very surprised if it wasn't brand-new. Interesting. Um, The interesting thing is that you can't ban the Communist Party in Australia. Well, the Commonwealth Government can't ban the Communist Party because they tried and failed and the High Court said you can't do it. Mm. Um, The states, however, could ban the Mm. Communist Party or the Nazi Party. Mm. Why? Why why can't the Commonwealth do it? They don't have the power. There's there's no power in the... Well, there wasn't at the time of that case in terms of the defence power. Yeah, Mm. yeah. 
So because that's just sort of flexible power, isn't it? Depending yeah. on what's happening. The breadth of this law in Germany is quite extreme. So you don't necessarily have to intend to further Nazi ideology or other extremist views by displaying or using the symbols. There was a 2006 prosecution of a guy in Stuttgart. Um, He had an online business that sold various different paraphernalia and he sold items like, I think, T-shirts and things like that, which had... Uh, symbols on them for the purpose of promulgating anti-Nazi sentiment. So things like the swastika with a line drawn through it, like in a no-parking-traffic-sign kind of way. And he was initially convicted and fined, the judge saying that the danger of familiarisation is ever-present and, in particular, this mass-market business risked undermining the swastika's taboo status. But on appeal, that was overturned and the court said he was known, this particular defendant, for his left-wing views. He hadn't violated the intent of the law and there was no danger that the items that he sold might be misused by neo-Nazi groups. But it's interesting that the, the ban in Germany is so strictly applied, it seems, that you could even bring a prosecution in those circumstances and, and successfully secure a conviction, at least at first instance. And that's been upheld in the European Court of Human Rights, isn't it, obviously, because they've still got the law. Mm. Yeah, sure so the European uh, Union has recommended that there shouldn't be a blanket position across Europe, and there are various different positions across Europe. So, for example... Uh, in Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Austria, France, um, the swastika is banned. Uh, in the UK, Ireland, many Scandinavian nations, it's not, where they have favoured a focus on free speech and expression and focused on other ways, I guess, of countering that kind of thinking and neo-Nazism and so on, not through suppression but through other um, means, speech, combating speech, I guess. Uh, And people might remember there was quite a scandalous example in the United Kingdom when Prince Harry went to a costume party wearing a Nazi uniform and there was obviously huge criticism of him but it was made very clear that he hadn't broken any law in Britain as a result of doing that. So the EU has said that there shouldn't be a blanket ban but they've upheld or the European Court has upheld a Germany's ban now. Yeah. Mm. They also, there are countries that ban, I don't know if they're EU countries, the hammer and the sickle as well. Yeah, so Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, they ban the hammer and sickle as well as the swastika. Um... And then in France, the penal code provision prohibits public display of symbols, insignia and uniforms that have been utilised by organisations responsible for crime and explicitly um, includes in that the Nazi party and the swastika. In Finland, the, the public display of the swastika is not illegal, but the police have powers to confiscate the symbols 
on signage, if they're used for ethnic agitation, endanger public safety and so on. These notions of, like, the permissible limits of free speech, how offensive something is, the need for restrictions, I guess they all are sort of referable to national history and things that have happened in a country. Like, what might be appropriate to ban in Germany might not be appropriate to ban in Australia. I mean, they have this real history of the regime associated with these symbols and the movement associated with these symbols having held state power not that long ago, having killed, you know, six million or more people. So they seem to have a different rationale to me or to my mind. Yeah. Um, I can't really come at banning it here. Well, I just... It's it's a bit unnecessary. It's unnecessary. I I think this particular case is really interesting because it just goes to show the passage of time and what that effect can have on a community where somebody puts a flag up in honour of their German ancestry, you know... 50 years ago, unthinkable. 70 years later, it's, oh, I wonder if anyone's going to get the shits with this flag going up. It's like the, the, the passage of time has completely changed the, the theory behind a symbol mm. in a community such as Beulah. Mm. And um, I just think that's really telling. And, and, it, goes, and it goes back to your uh, points about uh, the laws that were enacted in Germany were definite, not knee-jerk reactions, but definite uh, legislation in response to the end of the war. Can I, 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 I'm a, I would consider myself to be as close to a free speech absolutist as you can get. And the whole idea that of hate speech disturbs me. I, I, I don't think that government should be involved with anything to do this kind of, with any of this stuff, sticks and stones, etc. Except... There's a show, an American show called The Young Turks. And The Young Turks are the people who precipitated the genocide on the Armenian people in 1915 that my grandfather survived. And when I see the show The Young Turks, and when I, like, the, the disgust that I feel when, I, when someone's profiting by using that name is palpable. And I would punch those people in the face if they were in front of me for the fact of it. So... When I think about the people who are the children of survivors of World War Two and, you know, the Jews who suffered at the hands of the Nazi regime, I can well understand why they might want that bloody symbol criminalised. I mean, maybe that makes me the wrong person to ask because with my outside, with my, my rational view of all of this is I'm a free speech absolutist. But things hurt, you know? Um, on the other hand, sticks and stones, and we bloody well have to cop it. So I don't think we can diminish the lived experience of those who have to face these things. But I suppose where I land is to say, it's really sorry that you have to continue with this suffering at the hands of these things, but the reality is the opposite of that is far worse. The opposite of that is what leads you again to the regimes that precipitate that kind of violence. Yeah. Interesting one. It really is. It really is a, a, a to and fro, really. I mean, if you're looking at it from the perspective of this threat of the rise of the far right in a place like Australia, I mean, my concern is that the, if if these laws were to come into place, 
that they might inadvertently encourage the rise of those groups because then you get martyrs and you get, you know, groups that radicalise around their outlaw status. Yeah, gives the group something to fight. Common continual enemy. conflicts with authority mm. over display of symbols. So I just don't know that we have... Well, we certainly don't have that same sort of terrible history. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I question whether there's a need to introduce this. It's so offensive to fly those symbols... But it's been sort of met with the reaction that it deserves. Those people have been condemned by their community and by more, and by the media it's and more broadly, story. and they took them down ultimately, right? That's right. So uh, that would—that's an outcome that uh, I guess Emmanuel, you'd be more comfortable with um, in this particular scenario. I mean, it was trial by media, really. Yeah, look, I'm happy. I, I think that socially, those people should be isolated and devastated by yeah. by their conduct. I mean, I was looking at this this bill that changes or creates this racial and religious tolerance act, or that changes the act. So it's that, and part of it includes providing the commission that's going to administer all of this, the power to you know, demand evidence from people, force them to give evidence, and then suppress their identity because it might hurt their feelings. And so the things that we're putting in place to stop what are really honestly deep hurt feelings of other people are, on the side, fundamentally undermining people's rights. And worse, to Stephen's point, I think it gets a little bit worse than radicalising people, say, the far right. But what happens if one of these people legitimately gets their hands on power? then they have all of these tools to misuse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they can point to the precedent of their use against them. That's right, yeah. yeah. Felicity, um, what's the status of the bill? Yeah, so it's before the parliament, but in terms of... that, That's to expand the categories mm. in relation to vilification. But in terms of this notion that there should be a new law passed to ban the swastika or these symbols of hate, no bill has yet been prepared and the opposition party has said if the government doesn't make amendments to the current bill to include this, then they will introduce a private member's bill. Yeah, that's great. Except, I mean, would this bill have the longest sections and parts in history? I mean, what are you listing? Every offensive piece of... And yeah, I've got to amend it every week. I think they're just talking about the swastika, aren't they? Oh, OK. So I think their intention is not necessarily every... Symbol of hate. Symbol of hate. Mm. Jeez, you'd, you'd, every 10 seconds you'd be sitting in the chamber going, we need to amend this bill. Is the upside-down cross a symbol of hate? I don't know. Or is it the legitimate symbol of people who worship the devil? And well, what's what the, about the hammer and the, sickle? I mean, a lot of people died under that flag. What's the threshold, What's the threshold? I mean, is the threshold one person's offence or or more than one? I mean, I don't understand how you would how you would legislate symbols of hate and then how you would interpret symbols of hate. I mean, I think the one symbol that transcends all of that is the swastika. Right, OK, OK. <laughs> Clearly we can put that in the legislation. <laughs> Except that, you know, is the legislation going to say symbols of hate? Or is it going to say the swastika? I think it's what the Victorian Liberals have said is aimed at, I think, only at the swastika. Yeah, there was some reporting that suggested it might be slightly broader than that, but I think... That seems to be the main focus. And we have currently, under the law in Australia, in various different jurisdictions, criminal offences that could otherwise touch on this type of conduct or type of thing. So we have 
a racial vilification offence where someone doing a public act intentionally or recklessly threatens or incites violence towards another person on account of that other person's race um, and other categories, but we're here talking about race. Isn't there offensive conduct as well? Mm. Offensive conduct, offensive language could apply, using a carriage service to offend, menace or harass under the Commonwealth um, Criminal Code. So there are other laws that could apply to this type of conduct, depending on how you could prove certain motivations and the exact factual scenario that's involved. So I, I don't know that we need to add to the... To the criminal law. If you waved a swastika out the front of a synagogue, you would be guilty of offensive conduct, totally. surely, in no, New South Wales. So. That's what I you'd be arrested so. for, surely. Yeah. But, I mean, on the other hand, you know, someone would hopefully punch you in the face. Yeah. Because that would be an appropriate response. Yeah, right? It would be illegal, but it would be inappropriate. No, we're not. But can we, just stop letting the, can we just stop letting the terrorists win? Because that's what this is. These dickheads living out wherever they are hoist this flag and they've all of a sudden put Nazis on the national agenda. Mm, mm. What have we done? We've, we've given them what they wanted. You know, it kind of relates back to the last topic in that we've got political responses to um, uh, situations of law that the solutions currently already exist, yeah. mm. uh, yet somebody feels that in order to save a solution or find a solution to a problem that doesn't mm. exist... You need to hold a press conference and announce a new law. That's Tough on crime, to, you know. Yeah. Let's send the army in, protect us from the terrorists by shutting down the courts. Yeah. You know? And a lot of people, a lot of um, uh, elected officials seem to think that it might be a vote win. But Well, the problem is nobody's saying the alternative. Both sides pretty much sing, sing from the same song sheet. So there's, there's no votes in saying, we've already got the laws, leave it alone. No, there are. It's just no one's got the gall to say it, right. you know. There are, yeah, there are definitely votes in standing up and saying, no, you know, this is too far. And historically, oppositions took that role. But yeah. it's just not in the last 30 years or so. You know? And there's no independent arbiter. Like, there's no Bill of Rights that, you know, ultimately puts responsibility in the courts to decide if the law goes too far. Although in Victoria they have the Human Rights Act, which... Yeah, though that doesn't allow for striking down of legislation, does it? No. It's just declarations of incompatibility that the Parliament can act on if they want to. Um, and in many ways it's worse than useless because it makes them say we've got a human rights thing, but when it comes down to the real human rights issues, they just override it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? I mean, human rights only count when it's at that level, when, yeah, yeah. when it really counts. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting, though, from the sound of it, like let's imagine this hypothetical scenario where we do have a free speech right and the High Court can strike down laws. If the European Court has upheld the German law- laws, wouldn't seem to be open and shut that an Australian High Court would say that any such law was unconstitutional. I mean, we're not Germany, we don't have Germany's history, but we do have a large Jewish community who do have that history. And indeed, in Beulah, one of the neighbours was a survivor of the concentration camp. Really? Yeah. What about so, the Americans, though? They, would, they wouldn't allow this kind of thing, no, I would have thought. No, there's no restrictions in America um, on the Nazi party. It exists. It flies its symbols. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with the KKK. And you can find footage online of American street parades and protests or whatever with swastikas and KKK symbols. It's basically open slather there. 
except at the point where you're actually directly inciting violence. What a fantastic topic. In fact, this has been a fantastic discussion. We'll be right back after this break. Thanks, Wigs. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we return with our verdict of fun things. This is the this is the segment where we cap the show off, uh, and uh, I go through a uh, wig by wig and ask them what their fun thing is. And we're going to start with wig Felicity Graham. Uh, Felicity, can you tell the jury members of the jury what your fun thing is? Jim, I'm hosting my book club this weekend, Whoa. and we are reading David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I only have about. 20 hours left on the audiobook oh. <laughs> to cram in between now and then, but I'll get there. Well, you'll have to listen to this episode of the week before then as well to check off your edits. That's not going to happen. Okay, okay. <laughs> Those edits, yeah, it'll be really good. We usually get together much merriment, good food, good wine. It's putting a slight dent in my Feb fast ambitions, but uh, it has to last, be done. What was the last book that you read? Book club. Oh, don't ask me that. There you go. Manuel Kakasheri. <laughs> this is a cracker book club, that one. Uh, details on joining uh, will be at the uh, ne- probably never posted. Manuel comments. Kirk- <laughs> there you go. Manuel Kakasheri, please tell us what your fun thing is. Um, I'm going this weekend to, weather permitting, to a performance of Julius Caesar at Balmoral Beach in the park with a couple of bottles of wine and a few mates and some cheese and crackers and that kind of thing. Um, and it's wonderful. They have sort of a rotunda down there in this beautiful place. You've got the waves crashing behind you. It's very romantic, you know. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, friends, Romans, countrymen, it's, it's, it'll be fun. Well, yes, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, to be or not to be? Well, indeed. Wrong play? Weather, weather permitting, wrong play, but... There you go. Yeah, yeah. Nailed it again. Stephen Lawrence, the deputy mayor of Dubbo, like, oh my gosh. His worship. Please, your honour... Your Honour, tell us, what is your fun... Have you found in your diary your fun thing that you want to... Yeah, uh, I feel a bit intimidated by these sort of over-civilised wigs with their sort of fancy events. I know. Um, I casted my mind forward by looking at my diary. And um, on the 22nd of February, I've got the big baby's birthday. And my partner actually put that in because I am the big baby. <laughs> and it's my birthday. That's your birthday. Okay. On the 22nd of February. So, look, we'll be doing something nice for that. Yay. Uh, but I noticed the weekend after that, I've got a range of other council engagements in there, but uh, the weekend after that, I'm going to the Charity Shield in Mudgee. Hey! Yeah, oh, South that the one that, George. Did I attend that with you last year? Or? Oh, no, I attended that crazy ball in Mudgee. Mate, you and I attended uh, Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the in Stars Orange, in Orange. I believe. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, historic events. And Orange, it was a fantastic night. Yeah, and I'm wondering, did Chris ever take the winner to Parliament House for lunch? I don't know. We'll have to chase that up. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that winner, if they did cash it in, which I'm sure they didn't, would be quite disappointed to know that he wasn't going to fulfil that lunch order. Mm. Um, anyway. So basically, I'm a loser. I don't have any cultured, interesting thing to talk about. But that's Yeah. Fine. Well, look, no one's going to ask me, but I don't have one either. So... You don't have to ask, by the way. That wasn't. Well, no, Jim. I'm, I'm looking at you as if to say, "What's what's?" Oh, I'm going to cut this episode of the wigs. That's my oh, fun that's thing. Cool. It's going to be so fun to listen to this conversation again. 
Ladies and gentlemen, what a fantastic month it's been. Uh, episode six, I think the greatest episode ever. Uh, we'll find out. Episode seven will top it. Um, thanks to Stephen Lawrence. Thanks to Emmanuel Kirkusherian. Thanks to Felicity Graham, the greatest lawyers in New South Wales. Probably history. We'll let the jury decide. We'll see you next month. And thanks to Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.